Hello and welcome to Quo Vadis Institute's Rethink, a podcast that will supply you with thought-provoking approaches to and reflections on some of the most challenging issues of our day. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Quo Vadis Institute's podcast, Rethink. My name is Stefania Knecht and I'm a PhD student at the University of St. Andrews. And today I have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Stoddart about surveillance and the Black Lives Matter movement. Dr. Stoddard grew up in Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland, and I know that most of you would make the immediate connection with Scotland and whiskey, but Dr. Stoddard is actually a connoisseur of craft gin, so um, if any of you want to ask any questions about that at some point, um, you can reach out to him. Uh, he was in pastoral ministry for a little over a decade, but has been mainly active in academia in the last 25 years. Um, Dr. Stoddard is a lecturer in practical theology and the associate director of the Center for the Study of Religion and Politics at the University of St. Andrews, and that's where we know each other from. His main research lies in the intersection of digital technologies in general, and surveillance more specifically, and theology. He's not a stranger to podcasts, and you can check out his interfaith dialogue series, Conversations in Practical Theology, wherever podcasts are available. And during lockdown, when many of us were making sourdough bread or finishing our DIY project, Dr. Stoddard brilliantly used that time to finish his next book on surveillance and the common good, titled The Common Gaze. Have a listen to the previous episode, episode five, if you haven't heard it, and if you're interested in surveillance and the COVID pandemic. And as mentioned already, today we will be talking about surveillance and the Black Lives Matter movement. Welcome, Eric, and thank you so much for being here. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure. Um, and the first question that I'm going to ask is, how does the topic of surveillance intersect with theology? And I know that you've already mentioned this in the previous episode, but for our first-time listeners, um, could you just summarize how those two um, mix together? Yeah, I can maybe start with that familiar gospel song, His Eyes on the Sparrow. Because that's fundamental to Christian theology, that God is watching, but God is watching over, watching over, taking mm. care of. And I think that's the fundamental approach that we need to think about, how surveillance is practiced as an act of care. Because Christians believe that God's watching is an act of God's care and God's love. And I talk about God being a surveillance agent partly to stimulate people and get them to think about what on earth is he on about in terms of God <laughs> surveillance, but also as a way of saying surveillance is a good thing in many settings. Mm. But sometimes in that particular setting, it can be good and bad at the very same time. So we need to think critically about surveillance using, from a theological perspective, God's care, God's watching, God's love, and particularly how that is expressed in the cross. The cross of Christ, Jesus watching in solidarity, particularly for all of those who are in greatest need, and taking together love, solidarity, compassion, but not being blind to the problems of surveillance and authority mm. and power and differences in social status and power dynamics and relationships. And I think all of that comes into a sharper focus when we think critically about what do we mean when we say that God watches? 
What do we mean when we say, or I say that Christ watches from the cross in solidarity? And what mm-hmm. does that mean then for the types of surveillance that we practice as perhaps professionals in the surveillance industry as an educator, gathering data about students, considering students' progress, whatever sort of way in which we are personally involved in surveillance, mm-hmm. how do we use those Christian theological angles to think mm-hmm. about better surveillance in our respective professions and in our societies as a whole? Mm-hmm. And I think what helped me also in, in the previous episode is this idea that surveillance isn't necessarily what I have in my head about cameras being put everywhere, but it's the gathering of data just in general. It's the gathering of data and the processing of that data with mm-hmm. a specific intention to modify people's behaviour. So, for example, you go on to a well-known um, commercial uh, shopping site and you get other customers who bought this item also bought or viewed this. Mm-hmm. That's surveillance. That's gathering your data of what you've been viewing, what you've been purchasing, processing it algorithmically. There's not a, a person sitting behind a computer saying, oh, Stephanie looked at this, therefore I'm going to pr- present mm-hmm. this to her. This is all done automatically. But those algorithms have been set up by people with particular intentions to then shape how you are going to think about your purchases. So surveillance is is not just a neutral tool. It's Mm, shaping mm -hmm. how we think about what we're doing, whether it's watching, whether it's processing data, whether it's shopping, whether it's running and having self-tracking apps for our fitness progress, whatever it is, it's shaping who we are at the very same time Mm. as it's offering us security, better deals, better fitness, whatever it is that's on Mm -hmm, offer. mm -hmm. And I think from both the previous episode, but also from a conversation that we had a couple of months ago, I remember that you said that surveillance is biased. And I think that obviously is probably going to be a big part of today's episode. Um, Is there something that you could say about that? Yes, surveillance is biased in that human beings are biased. There is structural discrimination in all our societies. Mm-hmm. Certain people are viewed because of the skin color, because of the socioeconomic status, because of the sexuality, because of the politics. Certain people are viewed as a threat to other groups. And mm-hmm. so that can be sometimes on legitimate grounds. Some people are an actual threat. But most of the time, this is actually about discrimination. It's about saying, here's a particular individual that I'm encountering. I'm not going to see them as an individual. I'm going to see them as simply through the lens of a group that I have prejudices about. Mm. And so Mm. that individual is summed up in the basis of that group that I feel threatened by, whether it's because of their ethnicity, race, whatever. Mm -hmm. An example of that could be a a person of Middle Eastern descent and airport security, for example. Exactly. Um, Depending on where the airport security is. If you're Mm. a person of Middle Eastern uh, descent (laughs) and you're going through a Middle Eastern airport, you're not going to be anything like as obvious or treated with the degree of suspicion that you might be if you go through an airport in a different country. Mm-hmm. And so it's very much about what is the social context in which the surveillance is happening. 
Um, If your skin color is, to put it in quote marks, the wrong color for that situation, if that marks you out as people perceive you to be a threat, then that's going to be discriminatory surveillance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you know the the one of the standard phrases was you know the police stopping someone who's driving whilst black, mm-hmm. and this idea that it's because of someone's skin color that they are targeted for being stopped by the police when they're driving, mm-hmm. and it's this sort of discrimination that is part of societies. And surveillance usually exacerbates that. It cements it. Mm-hmm. It gives supposed data that can be then used for political advantage to say, well, actually, here's some data that shows that these people are actually a threat. Now, that data is often not questioned. It's often not put into context. And so you get the politicization of data. Mm-hmm. And surveillance becomes incredibly political because it's reflecting, but it's also exacerbating existing bias and prejudice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. So because we've already talked about discrimination, maybe this is a good moment to segue into the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, surveillance in its many different forms has played a huge part um, in the Black Lives Matter movement and also in the discrimination against people of different ethnicities and different skin colors, um, both in the States, but also in the UK and in other European countries. I know that the context might be a bit different, but maybe let's start talking about the context of the United States. And um, I was just wondering if you could share some of the insights that you've gleaned from, from, from that connected with surveillance. We need to put surveillance and Black Lives Matters into a context of surveillance in the US against people who are Mm. African-American, black, whatever the preferred term is, because there's a history of observation and police and people in communities watching what is happening and expressing their prejudice by intense Mm -hmm. scrutiny of people with a different skin colour to them. And so we put that into that broader context of racial discrimination in the US and the problems of racial discrimination by the police, by certain members of the police force. And then you put into that the technologies of some of the facial recognition technologies which are used Mm. uh, through surveillance cameras to identify particular individuals There's some evidence that many of the early versions of that, and maybe some of that are still in use, were inherently racially biased because Mm -hmm. the normal face was assumed to be a white face. And with issues of shadows and facial structure, there's evidence that some of the surveillance facial recognition technologies were actually racially biased and they were generating more either incorrect identifications of people or generating this is someone who needs to be investigated further. And that Mm. was disproportionate against particularly African-American communities. So there's Mm -hmm. been a problem with facial recognition technology right from its its beginnings. Many are seeking to really improve that, but 
there's often a time lag. Facial recognition technology can be, can very quickly get out of date, and mm-hmm. states don't necessarily have the money to buy the latest and best facial recognition technology. So you get legacy yeah. issues cropping up because it's just simply too expensive to replace with the most updated and better facial recognition. Mm-hmm. And and now also recently, I think there's been almost like this switch of surveillance, like you are surveilling us unjustly and we're going to start recording that and start gathering that data to show the injustice. Yes, the surveillance study scholars um, use the term surveillance, using the French, French sous being from under. Mm. So to talk about surveillance are those protesters who are turning surveillance back on the authorities. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. as you say, they're using cameras, they're using audio devices to record what is actually being done towards protesters. That's a new feature that hasn't previously been possible to the same extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the 1960s, protesters who were being abused by the authorities could take photographs, but those photographs you know, were not digital. Those were no. on to print. And those took a while to actually get printed. And even then, those had to be distributed through newspapers or flyers. But now you can live stream from within a protest what is actually happening at mm. that protest. You can use surveillance to challenge the police authorities. Now, certainly in the UK, in most circumstances, police must have their police identification number on, on their shoulder. Right. That isn't necessarily the case in every country. And mm-hmm. so you have unidentified police officers performing protest management, to use a not really very neutral term, mm-hmm. but they then can't be identified. And so that right. becomes a huge issue. No matter how much surveillance a group does, if the police are not willing to be identified. This is not identifying them so that they can be tracked to their homes, but it is saying that this is about accountability, some way of identifying who is perpetrating particular tactics in a protest and policing that protest. But now with the digital options and being able to live stream or to distribute it on social media instantly, you you get a complex situation where that's, an incredibly good, positive thing to do. But that is only ever one tiny little angle on what's happening. Mm. So there's a huge danger that what is being broadcast by individuals from within a protest is actually only a tiny sliver. And the assumption is that this is then happening right across the whole of that protest, which may be covering many blocks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, this This is a problem that is always balanced up with the need to be holding the state accountable. Mm -hmm. But we have to be aware that this is only ever, strictly speaking, showing one tiny little angle. Mm -hmm. It becomes really problematic when something is broadcast then by regular media, because there is evidence that people watching regular media get a perception that an event is much bigger and widespread than it is because with rolling news that's 24-7, 
you will often get the same piece of video replayed every 10 minutes. And there is evidence Mm -hmm. that some people perceive that. They know that it's the same event, but they perceive it and feel it as if it was 20 episodes, different episodes of the same thing happening. So Mm -hmm. their emotional reaction to it is as if there were 20 separate events when this is actually 20 broadcasts of the same event. Now, that can work in a sense to the advantage of protesters who are wanting to get the public to see what's happening. But it can then also be used by those on the other side to say, well, look, here's an episode of of a protester fighting back. Mm -hmm. And that one episode then played 20 times during the day becomes imagined to be 20 protesters or it covering Mm -hmm. 20 blocks in the street. So it's a very ambivalent uh, Mm. process to be sharing things through social media. You immediately lose control of those images and those video feeds, and it becomes much, much more complex that can work to the advantage or to the disadvantage, sometimes at the same time, of protesters Mm -hmm. who are legitimately protesting and tackling the accountability of the police. Yeah. And in that sense, it's, again, kind of reaffirming what you said, that surveillance is biased because it or and the reception of the surveillance will be biased because it's all about humans and and, and it's either portraying an angle or interpreting an angle. And and sadly, that's often just will be distorted. That's it. It's, this is about interpre- interpreting. Because, yes, the the surveillance, the actual algorithm can sometimes be inherently biased. The example I gave of facial recognition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it can also be that our interpretation can feed our existing bias. It can confirm what we think about groups of people at the same time as it can challenge what we think about groups of people. So there's never any guarantee And the balance is, is it worth putting that out, knowing that for some people it will confirm their prejudice, but for others Mm. it will undermine their prejudice? And you simply can't know. And Mm. that then becomes part of a bigger social issue about this is not just an individual protest or series of protests. This is about changing the public's perception so Mm. the public become much more attuned to think critically about what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the key, and especially for theologians, but all surveillance studies scholars, is to enable people to think critically about surveillance, to not simply take it at face value. Now, that's a fine balance between thinking critically and being cynical, mm-hmm. or even worse, getting into the conspiracy theory mm-hmm. rabbit hole. But to think critically is to question and to ask interpretive questions about what mm-hmm. am I being shown from the surveillance data? How mm-hmm. can that be put into a wider context? How can I think more connectedly about it? So what's there? are you trying to suggest there has to be like a middle step between seeing the data or seeing the surveillance and then a, a certain critical questioning um, before the interpretation, or how would you suggest one what does that? I think these are all happening simultaneously, mm. and especially when you're talking about legitimately highly emotive protests when someone's been killed unlawfully that 
to to try and say, okay, hold your emotions, now do some mm. critical thinking, and now mm. we can do the interpretation. That's just not on. That's mm. putting an unrealistic and inappropriate burden on those who are grieving, who are angry, who are legitimately protesting. But it does mean that in the midst of all of this, to be able to do that simultaneously, that's a big ask. But I think it's the only way that we can go forward, whatever types of protests we're talking about, and people are putting under surveillance and are under surveillance by the state, to be constantly asking that question, where are the biases here? What is actually happening? What sort of data is being gathered? Is it just a snippet or is this genuinely representative of something bigger? It may well be. Therefore, how do we react to that? There's a huge responsibility on journalists. There's a huge responsibility mm-hmm. on community leaders, faith leaders in particular often, to be able to stand a little bit back and to say, well, actually, what's going on here? This is not about choosing sides to defend. You mm-hmm. can be absolutely committed to protest and the Black Lives Matter and still have a critical take on what is happening as a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, one of the interesting phenomena, I think, that were coming out of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the recent kind of videos and, and, and increasing surveillance also as a sign of um, resistance against this oppression, um, against discrimination, was the filming of Karens, if you will, and the, the filming of often white women um, or mostly white women who would be attacking um, people of color in different public spaces and um, and acting and showing their bias very openly. How do you think that has, um, do you have any kind of thoughts about, about that, where it's also holding not only the police accountable, but each other or people in society accountable? I think this, again, is one of these really ambivalent things, that to hold someone accountable, and if they are being racially prejudiced in a park towards someone who has done absolutely nothing to them, but this woman, as the Karen figure, is usually presented, there is something positive about holding people accountable. But when we take Christian theological concerns into this, what are the options for redemption that are left? Mm. Karens are people too. And that is not to legitimate what someone does, but are the consequences for that Karen disproportionate to what she's actually done? Now, that's a really delicate thing to start asking because... She is an example in that setting Mm. of systematic and structural racism. But from a Christian theological point of view, if Jesus says, love your enemies, what does that mean for a Christian who is videoing a Karen figure and Mm. putting that up on social media? It may be that that Karen figure is very angry and very prejudiced, but may also, on a Sunday, be at a Lord's table at the same time as that Christian who is videoing her. 
What is actually happening to the body of Christ in that situation where someone is posting a video of a Karen misbehaving and really being obnoxious? Where's the opportunity for redemption and forgiveness and restoration for that Karen? Hmm. Thinking possibly, not that her, the fact that she might be a Christian isn't going to either whitewash what she's doing. She's still doing something wrong, but she might actually be participating in a Lord's Supper somewhere else in town, probably not in that um, person who's doing the recording, not in in their own church. But let's say they are. They're in different churches round the corner from each other at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Both those people are gathered around the one Lord's table, but in two different locations. Mm. Where are the possibilities for redemption? That, I think, is the really difficult angle that a Christian theological take on surveillance starts pushing. And this is not to excuse what that Karen figure has done, but it is to ask another set of questions about Mm -hmm. forgiveness. Mm, Yeah. And I think that's a a huge question um, or a big question. part of this conversation is is then redemption and 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 forgiveness and how can we move from surveilling and holding each other accountable to then re-establishing relationships yeah and that's again this what is surveillance for is it in these Karen videos is it for public witness to structural racism yes Okay, good. Needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Is it for revenge? That becomes mm-hmm. more problematic. Mm-hmm. Is it to so demean and disadvantage the perpetrator that she then continues a cycle of violence? Is the surveillance for continuing the violence of discrimination or is it surveillance for redemption? and restitution, and restoration. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the, one of the key theological questions about this sort of what you would call peer-to-peer surveillance. Mm-hmm. Not saying that it shouldn't be done. I'm not saying that the Karens need to be given a free pass, especially not, especially if they try to claim that they're Christian. They may well be, but just fatally flawed. Mm-hmm. And so it's asking this difficult question about surveillance for redemption. That's not going to happen in if you use language of privacy only, if you use language of protest mm-hmm. only. What sort of breaking of cycles of violence? And it's well known that cycles of violence need to be broken. And mm-hmm. sometimes that breaking of the cycle comes from those who are most damaged by what is happening that it's the victims that are actually breaking the cycle of violence. Mm. Now, that's a huge um, commitment from those who want not just accountability and not just revenge, but want to see beyond the racism, want to see beyond Mm. these cycles of violence, what links can be built, what ways forward might be possible for restoration. Thank you. 
and that's a lot to be left with and a lot to think about. So thank you so much for your time, Eric, and for having um, given us so much to think about over the last two episodes. Pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Thank you for listening to the Corvatus Institute's podcast briefing. We hope you'll join us again next time.